Okay, so we're picking up on the middle of page four, or two-thirds way down, uh, under purgatory. Now, you'll notice that when we talk about the last four things, heaven, hell, or judge, new year, all right, death, judgment, heaven, hell. Those are the traditional last four things. That's when we talk about eschatology we're talking about. So, death, everybody gets it. Judgment, everybody gets it. And then heaven or hell. But as we know, Catholics also talk about things like purgatory. So how does that fit in there? It's not even one of your options, Catholic person. Well, that's because purgatory is not its own thing. As you see there, it's under number three. It's under heaven. This is an important thing to recognize how when Catholics even talk about purgatory, where are they placing it? All right. So let's start off with a definition here. So purgatory is defined as a place of purifying, purifying, here it's spelling, I think, before seeing God face to face. Wow, I should almost pay somebody to like do my writing for me, shouldn't I? What would you call it? It would be a stenographer. I need like a Vanna White up here. I need somebody who like just has beautiful flowy scripts uh, and, and, and puts it up on the board in, in, a, in a lovely way. Um, I am. Yep. Yes. Thank you. Good call. Good call. Yep. We don't want to have a, you know, go for half an hour and be like, oops, how'd that not happen again? Um, uh, so uh, a place of purifying before seeing God face to face. All right. So let's talk about that it's nickname because that helps us understand a little bit of what I mean by what it actually is. Okay. So Purgatory itself um, is, it's not even an official title, it's more of a descriptor of what it is. So, purgatory um, literally means a place of purging. I'll put that in quotes so you understand that's what it literally means. Right? We have the phrase, you know, in that form since late ancient times, early, early medieval. So by the time you're talking to Augustine, they're already talking, they're starting to kind of use a more specific title for it, but you find it referenced in earlier places, but not such as a set name. The thing about the name, again, is you look at um, Purgatory, um, uh, Dante is probably the person who most certainly locks it into our mindset, because he has his, his three places. He has the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. So, the inferno, the literally the infernal regions, the lower regions. But notice what we've done. In our minds, we think of the inferno as meaning hot, right? You get in your car and you're like, man, it's an inferno in here. All you've actually said is that you're underground, right? Because infernal and inferno come from the idea of inferior, the underneath places. It's the underworld, it's the netherworld. What happens is when Dante calls his place below, the, the infernal places, the lower places, when he calls that the inferno, and there's flames connected with certain parts of it, um, then people over time begin to think, oh, there's fires in hell, hell is the inferno, blah, 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 blah. So if it's hot, it must be. So we have a towering inferno, which if you think about it, you cannot be both towering and infernal at the same time. It's actually impossible. But, you know, we've, we've changed the meaning of inferno at this point to mean like an oven. Um, but so, so inferno is the, his name for the first part of his journey. Actually, does anybody know um, Dante's world at all of your gym after you had in like uh, college or anything. So in Dante's world it's very interesting. Um, this is going to be hard to draw because I want to leave space open. But So let's say there's the planet. Um, and in, now it's funny, you know, we always think that like Columbus proved the world was round. No, people knew the world was round. People have known the world was round since like Ptolemy's time. Um, and, uh, but 
and that includes Dante's even own description. He imagines himself over here, you know, in Italy, right? And then he goes down into the ground, uh, into, into the Inferno. And then what's interesting is he imagines himself actually coming out the other side, and there's this big mountain on the other side, and that mountain is the Purgatorio, which literally just means the place of purgation. That's all Purgatorio means in Latin. As you may see an Ia or an Io in Latin or Italian or um, uh, Spanish or French, those are usually places of. So like Calvaria, Calvary, literally just means the place of the skull. You know, we always hear that on Good Friday, you know, they, where they crucified uh, uh, was called the place of the skull. Calvus is skull in Latin, so Calvaria is simply the, the place of the skull. Anyway, so the mountain is the mountain of purgation, and then once you climb up the mountain, then you're ready to go to, this is going to be weird to look at, now you're ready to go up into the celestial realms of heaven. So literally he has like heaven on the other side of the world through, uh, going through it. But I mean, it's all just him trying to make it. Dante doesn't think any of these actually go this way. Dante is a poet who's making a story to make an allegory about human beings. But, notice people grab onto the image so much and for so long, in like, what, 700 years of Dante's images being foremost in our minds, that we, that we kind of, uh, hold on. Now, again, Dante doesn't invent the term, but he just used it, and that's where we just, you know, people tend to cling to that, right? So, place of purging... Other ways we refer the, the church for in a lot of different ways. So you look at like the, the church fathers, you'll see all sorts of ways. Um, place of cleansing, they'll talk about um, you know the um, uh, purification in another life, things like that. Um, uh, what do I want to add here? So, but the, the church when it talks about it officially, well, uh, or maybe not officially, but, but in, in more um, I don't know big picture terms, we'll call it um, heavens. Antechamber. I think I might have used that phrase with you guys once before. The problem with antechamber is nobody has an antechamber anymore. You know, when you lived in 1500, you know, you were probably familiar with an antechamber, you know. Uh, you're probably like going to your, your lord's house and, you know, you were made to stand in the antechamber until they sent, you know, his little steward down to talk to you. But you didn't go in and like sit down at the lord's table and stuff like that. You hung out in the antechamber, right? Um... So the problem is that one's not that one doesn't really necessarily work for us anymore. I like instead to call it heaven's mudroom. Because even if you don't have a mudroom, you know one is. Are we supposed to write those the Sure. Yep. Oh. Yep. Now, those are those are some of our better ones. Other saints and thinkers and writers add other things to that. There's one that I'm not sure that I like. Um, you hear uh, every once in a while um, certain uh, mystics and stuff like that refer to purgatory as hell with hope, which I do not like. Um, I think what they're trying to drive home on that idea is that it's hard. It's really, really hard. Make sure this is, um, you're not disturbed there. Um, so, but yeah, I, I just don't, I'm not sure that I really care, care, care for that as, as an image. Because it's not just like, you're suffering, you're suffering, suffering, and then, oh, but you're eventually going to get out. I don't think that's what's supposed to be. Because if anything, do we talk about, I think we talked about this, the idea that, that other saints talk about, you know, basically at the end of time, all there is is God. 
And therefore, it's just a question of are you oriented towards God or away from God? Do we talk about that a little bit, maybe? And like, you know, they'll even talk in terms of like, you know, God is an all-consuming fire. We're told that by scriptures, right? The question is, and I think Lewis uses this image a lot, that basically God is fire and light and, and strength. The question is, how do you see yourself in relation to that? If you have come out of the, our life in, with, with a heart open to God's, fire and light, you will open yourself up and you'll receive that and it'll be like the best day on the beach ever, right? But if not, if you have chosen to reject him, if you're running from him, if you don't trust him, if you fear him, then that strength, that heat, that light are like burning and painful to us, right? In the same way that the very same light that we like to, you know, look around our beautiful world with, you know, when you're waking up from a nap, hurts your eyes, right? The question is, like, are your eyes and your heart prepared to receive him or not? And so the saints will talk about, you know, the, 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 the light and heat that are burning uh, in your, in your um, hellacious experience are a blessing in your um, um, beatific experience, we're using fun words here, and then in purgatory, they are purifying, right? You know, that, you know, what do we do? We, we open up our doors and let in the, the, the fresh breeze and the, and, the, and the sunlight and stuff when we do our spring cleaning. It can be a, a purifying thing, but it can also then be bright on our eyes and hurts if we're not ready for it, or it can be, ah, there's the, the glorious sun come through, right? So that's why I don't like this idea, because it seems to be assuming that it's, it would seem to me this, if there is any hope at all, then it cannot be hellacious. The very awfulness of hell is knowing that you're there forever, right? Uh, that's that's how, how I would seem, seem to read it. That we're even going to talk about that a little bit, that what is the problem of hell is that it's separated from God and knowing you're separated from God and knowing that you chose to be separated from God. In which case, purgatory cannot seem to fit that description, right? If it's what we're saying is. Because I'm going to go back to this idea that it is heaven's mudroom. Okay. So put a check mark by the Heaven's Mudroom uh, uh, nickname. That's the one we're going to use most. Okay. That's what we were taught in season eight with a purgatory being right? By getting cleaned up and stuff like that before. Yeah, yeah. And I think I've even used that uh, image once before here as well, haven't I? Uh, is that something familiar? Like the idea of like you know wanting to get get cleaned up and stuff like that. Um, which brings us then to, to, to page five. We're going to keep going with that. Um, one of the questions that usually comes up um, with the whole problem, uh, one of the questions that comes up is like, wait, why can God... Because, okay, let's back up. Why are we saying we need to be purged? Why are we saying we need to be purified? Why do we need to be cleansed? We're saying because we have sin. To which the normal response would be like, but wait, Jesus... Where, where's the big cross? There you go. Jesus died on the cross for me, right? Why is that enough to cleanse me of sins? Right? And the classic Catholic response is to, to say that, yes, it cleanses, cleanses you from the eternal punishment due to sin, right? You know, the separation from God that would send you to hell. The, the fancy Catholic term is, but you still have temporal punishment due to sin, which sounds like basically there's like a second layer of sin or punishment or whatever, which I think is, a, is maybe an unfair way of doing it. What we're really saying there is there's stuff in me that still isn't right with God. You're like, but isn't that the definition of sin? The trick is, and that's why I say, keep understanding how we possess sin. And I, I might have used this before, and I apologize for repeating. I feel like I am, but I, maybe it was just to a different class that I was talking to. Maybe it was the, the CCD Wednesday night group I was talking to. Um, but the idea of how do we possess sin? Oftentimes, and I know I do this a lot, the way in which I talk about sin is as if they are things, like that I have these sins. So I've got selfishness. I've got pride. 
I've got self-will. And these are things I have. And if they are simply things I have, then yes, we do see how God can, through the atoning death on the cross and resurrection of his son, can take these things away. Here, let me relieve you of those burdens, right? Because we know that he can take away, you know, our sins, right? Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us, right? Okay, and that makes sense. They, they, certainly, he can take away the guilt there, right? But the trick of the matter is that if I'm really honest, it's not that I have pride or that I have selfishness. It's that I am proud. I am selfish. I am self-willed. There are things that I have made part of me, that I have invested in, that I have... I mean, the whole point... Lewis really is the best guy, and it's fascinating because he's not even a Catholic, because he really does a great job, if you read, like, The Great Divorce or Screw Tape Letters, the great idea that, like... Really, I have chosen, I have made myself want to be something less than a full human because of the, you know, in the moment I get attracted to this thing. And so I've, I've chosen to kind of dive into this. And in doing so, I have wrapped myself around really a lesser version of myself. You know, Matthew Kelly, who we give out books on Christmas from him, you know, he always talks about the idea of, you know, be the best version of yourself. That idea that it's actually me and part of me that I've either made better, virtue, or worse, vice, um, is something that, that, need, that is what we're talking about here. So when we talk about temporal punishment due to sin, the other way to think of that is, what have I made myself? Because we've talked about this, that, that God can't save me without, this is be careful, it's not that God can't save me without my help, it's more like God can't save me without my willing it, Right? If the soul, this is a whole definition of hell, if the soul utterly rejects help, if I say, no, God, you can't help me, you can't save me, your death on the cross wasn't good enough, your love is not enough, your, your desire to give me mercy, my sins are too big, or I don't want to, whatever, God is not going to force himself. As many people talk about, you know, God is a gentleman. God, you know, will offer, he will suggest, he will beg, he will cajole, he will try and trick us, he will do all these things. But then that God is not going to force us. He's not going to drag us kicking and screaming into heaven. And in the same way, if that is in the ultimate sense of, like, rejection in hell, then I also have to recognize that I have the power to truly move away from him, to look away from him, to look at these other things, and to make myself a lesser kind of person. But, of course, the beauty is that he wants to change me. He wants to make me more than that. He wants to make me, Matthew Kelly, the best version of myself. So that in that case, if it's truly a question of not that I have pride, but I am proud, we can understand why I have to work through that. I have to be cleansed of that, that I have to be, you know, set right to do that. So there below that, um, we have the line from Revelation, the one that probably is most important in referring to, to, to uh, purgatory. Um, but nothing unclear will enter, talking about heaven, nor will anyone who does abominable things or tells lies. Only those who will enter whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The important line there is, but nothing unclean will enter it. No one can enter into the city of the living God. No one can enter into the heavenly Jerusalem. No one can enter into eternal life, you know, uh, that is, who is unclean. But this is the question, right? What happens if I have given my life to God, if I have, in the big sense of things, surrendered to him, if I have embraced in faith the Christian um, worldview, and I've become a Christian and lived out the Christian life, but I'm still flawed, right? Lewis, again, I can't use him, he, he talks about that. He says, we naturally are drawn to this idea because we know that a lot of people who truly love God and try and live his life, but they have still their flaws. They have those imperfections. They are still proud. They are still selfish. They are still lustful. They are still gluttonous and stuff like that. How does that work? 
And again, we can imagine God is being like, don't worry about it. But as Lewis is going to point out here in a second, there's that sense where, God, where we don't want God to. We want to say, God, I want to be whole. And again, if I have worked to make myself bit by bit, think about it. How do we become enamored in a vice? Bit by bit, starting back to when we were little kids, we let ourselves go and we don't fix ourselves. We continue in the sin and we don't change it. We like it and we don't want to move, so we'll give up something else for Lent, right? And bit by bit. It's why, okay, so everyone, how many people have seen the new Star Wars? A couple people have seen the new Star Wars? All right. So this is the reason why I really dislike what, I know, and a lot of people dislike what George Lucas did in episodes one, two, and three. And people have like things like, I hate Jar Jar Binks. And we all understand that because Jar Jar is awful, right? What I don't like is they didn't sell me on how Anakin fell. You've been waiting 25 years to find out how Anakin Skywalker, this good guy, the, the last hope of the Jedi, how he becomes Darth Vader. Spoiler alert, right? You know, you're wondering how that's going to happen. And that, that, that th- episode three just disappointed me. Because, I mean, he goes from being like, Anakin's whiny, Anakin's self-willed, Anakin's hot-headed, right? But in a matter of like two hours, and really in a matter of about 15 minutes, he goes from being like, I'll do anything to protect my secret girlfriend and our children. Well, child, he thinks he is just one right at that point, right? You know, all that, to suddenly when he's offered the dark side, he's like, I will rule the galaxy. I'm like, I'm sorry. If you're going to become a man who wants to rule the galaxy, you've got to sell me on that. You've got to show me what happened. You've got to show me the bit-by-bit thing of the allure of power, the lies that you tell to hide it, the bit-by-bit of covering up, making justifications, covering that up, trying to, to fit it into your worldview, making bigger and bigger mistakes, but thinking that you're doing good. Things that we do as human beings. Like, all of us have more glorious falls from grace in, like, 11th grade than Anakin Skywalker had in episode 3. Because, I'm like, you've got to sell me on how we fall there. Because we become, bit by bit, taken in. So the Catholic understands that if that's the case, then you've got to unwind my soul, which has been round itself around this. Has anybody ever read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? It does an incredible job of showing basically how sin works in our lives and how we give ourselves over to it and how our wills join to it. And there is, it basically, it's, it's Lewis has this image of a soul sitting there watching things in what is basically hell slash purgatory. The Catholic idea is, is purgatory is part of heaven. Lewis's image, not saying his, his belief, but his image is basically purgatory and hell are the same thing. If you choose to leave there finally and trust in God, it was just purgatory. If you choose to stay there and you let yourself be calcified in your sin, it's, it's hell. It's an interesting little spin on it. But basically the idea is that a person has to finally say, I will let God change me. I will let go of these things. But it's the idea that literally people in their pride can hold on to their own failings. I do not want to let this part of me go. There's this great part where he's got this little lizard who's on this guy's shoulder talking to him saying, you don't want to give me up. You don't want to lose me. If you go across that field, I'll have to go away. And you know deep down you like me. You know, remember all the good times we've had? And he, and this lizard is sin. It's probably lust, but it doesn't exactly say it. But it's holding on to, like clinging to him, and the man does not want to let it go. And he feels like he'll lose something of himself by doing it, he'll be diminished. And there's this great fight back and forth of basically whether or not he'll surrender and let God, in this case an angel has come to, to, to help him, will he let the angel defeat the sin for him. But notice he has to be part of it. So Lewis is cool. He balances kind of a, shall we say, a more Protestant idea of like, you know, your, God has to destroy the sin. Like you can't do it on your own. So there's no like 
Pelagian idea, God has to be destroyed, but you have to will it. And that's kind of the, the, the Catholic idea of purgatory. God has to do the cleansing, but you have to be willing to enter into that, and then you have to be part of the process. Okay, so that brings me to my last, I didn't put this in the, in the other nicknames, but my true favorite nickname is actually remedial loving, right? Um, in school, we have remedial English, we have remedial math. Uh, I'm sure at, at earlier grades, they just have simply like, you know, like speech is basically a remedial speech course, right? You know, what is that doing? It's teaching you how to do what you didn't do right, you know? So, um, you know, for the kid that can't say their, I don't know, their S is right, they got a lift or something like that, right? You know, they go to the speech path person to do remedial speech to get that better. You know, the person who struggles with like smoothness in their reading, they go to remedial reading, right? What is purgatory? It's remedial loving. It's saying that in this life, what was I called to do? I was called to know, love, and serve God in this life to be happy with him the next. That's what the Baltimore Catechism says. You know, what is my call to do? I'm called to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. If I have not loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is, by the way, a rather high standard, um, and, I, and love my neighbor as myself, which even that is decently hard, right? If I haven't done that, then you could argue that I've got a deficiency. I've got an incomplete, I need remedial loving. And so, and people will say, like, where's purgatory in the Bible? It's never their name by name, but we see Jesus talking about sins against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this life or the next. What's that mean to be forgiven in the next? It sounds like there's the possibility of remedial loving, that, you can, that sins can be forgiven in the next, that you can have those things set straight. And so what happens? I go and, again, I have no idea what any of this looks like, right? You know, Lewis does a great job of making us realize that we have no idea, we can't even fathom what any of these steps look like. But whatever it means for me to learn how to love, you know, one way or another, I will learn how to love right. I'll love God better, my neighbors better, you know, I'll probably learn to, you know, that, you know, I have to learn to love Tom Brady. And that's going to be hard for me. I'm going to really struggle if part of purgatory is like, you've got to learn to love Tom. Like, no, Tom has destroyed all my hopes and dreams for 20 years. Tom always beats the Colts. He always beats, you know, Peyton. He always beats everybody I like. But he's going to be like, but you have to love him. Okay. All right, fine. And I'll cry my way through it, and I'll learn to love Tom Brady. All right. So remedial loving, I think, is the best image we have then. So thing to remember is what is the standard of loving, right? You know, if we're saying you have to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if you have to love your neighbor as yourself, how did <coughs> Jesus himself explain that love at the Last Supper? You know, he says, love one another as I have loved you. When he just said, love one another, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, you're like, well, I love myself quite a bit. So if i got to love you up to that level. Dang, I really got to love you. But in the Last Supper, he goes further and says, love one another as I have loved you. You're like, oh my gosh, that's so much higher, right? Because then like two lines later, he says, greater love than this has no man than to lay down his life for his friend. He tells you how high the bar is. He tells you that that over there is the measuring stick of love. Do you love with a crucifixion type of love? And if not, then we need remedial loving. You know, when people wonder, you know, do the saints go to purgatory? I don't know, but it would seem like that the, the, the whole question is... A saint is somebody who is with God perfectly in heaven. The kind of people that we think are likely to make there are the ones who have already loved him intensely here on earth. But even they still might fall short of Jesus' kind of loving, right? I, I assume it's rather short for Mother Teresa. I'm sure she kind of like pops in and is like, oh, finally a break. 
I do love you, Jesus. Okay, I'm coming, right? You know, where I'm like, I better get a bed because I'm going to be here a while, you know. Um, but that it's just a great image then of, of what do we learn. I'm learning how to love. And you think about it. Why do people talk about purgatory being painful? Why can a saint even say hell with hope? Because we've learned that sacrifice is painful, right? Every child of two or three years old who has to learn that if I have a whole apple and you want part of the apple, I'm picturing like Daphne here for a second. And you want part of the apple. If I'm going to share the apple, if I'm going to love and give part of the apple, that means I get less apple. And every kid has learned that less apple is not as fun as full apple, right? And like, you know, six chocolates on uh, Christmas morning is, is more fun than three chocolates on Christmas morning, right? You know, and that hurts. And that's what we can talk about it being a painful, purgative cleansing process is because to learn how to love is kind of like going to the dentist, you know, you know, I'm making up for years of neglect. I, have, I haven't flossed in forever, right? You know, and like the, the, the uh, tech is like, oh, I'm sorry. We're going to have to do some remedial flossing here, right? You know, we're, you know it hurts. Um, not because God is punishing us, but because if I have not been loving and virtuous, it's going to hurt. Like, we all know what it's like to try and change a, virtue, a vice into a virtue. We all know how hard the first couple weeks of Lent are, you know, when you try and, like, let go of something. Why is it hard to skip that coffee? Well, the coffee might actually be, like, actual withdrawal. But, like, why is it hard to give up TV to, or to not go on Facebook? It's because you've, you've, it hurts. It hurts to let go of something. It hurts to sacrifice. Well, I've spent a long time on like four lines. But again, purgatory is one of the hardest things to get. Below you have the great line. Uh, this is C.S. Lewis talking to his brother. It's in the book. Um, it's actually in a collection of his letters uh, to his brother, mostly on prayer. Um, but the, and I, I think I've kind of summarized this for you guys before, but I'm going to go ahead and, and... Do you want me to read it? Is that okay? Can we do that? All right. He writes, Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart if God said to us, It's true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but we are charitable here, and no one will abrade you with these things, nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. Should we not reply, With submission, sir, if there is no objection, sir, I'd rather be cleansed, be cleaned first. It may hurt, you know, even so, sir. So he's having this description, this, this conversation between God and him. God says, come on into orbit. He says, no, I'd like to be cleaned. And he's like, it might hurt a little. And he says, I know. Even so, sir, I'd like it. Again, whether you're thinking of the dentist or you're thinking of the remedial loving or whatever, it, it works there. Um, I assume that the process of purification will normally involve suffering, partly from tradition, partly because most real good that has been done to me in this life has involved it. But I don't think the suffering is the purpose of purgation. I can well believe that, that people neither much worse nor much better than I suffer less than I or more. Well, that's confusing. Uh, go back and read that slowly when you're at home. Uh, the treatment given will be the one required, whether it hurts little or much. That's a cool idea, that whatever you need for that remedial loving is where it'll be. It might be painful, but it might be not. You can imagine people in this world who are so broken, who are so wounded by the things of life, they have not been loved, and because they haven't been loved, they don't know how to give love. So it's almost more like they never had it to give. So their remedial loving might not be this idea of learning how to let go of those chocolates or learning how to let go of Facebook and Lent. It might be simply learning how to sit there and let the Father love them. And for them, it might not be painful at all. It might be simply for once in life, finally sitting there, not fighting back, not saying no, not raising an objection, not walking away, simply being, yes, I get it. That's kind of a cool thought to recognize that no matter what we need, it's going to be what we need, and it's going to be in the right measure for us. My favorite image on this matter comes from the dentist chair. I hope that when the tooth of life is drawn and I am coming round, a voice will say, rinse your mouth out with this. 
This will be purgatory. The rinsing may take longer than I can now imagine. The taste of this may be more fiery and astringent than my present sensibility can endure, but it will not be disgusting or unhallowed. So his idea that whatever that suffering might be, it will be a beautiful and hallowing kind of thing. In the same way that, like, I mean, you think about it, okay, it's the first week of January. What's everybody doing throughout America? Working out, right? You go to Anytime Fitness, it is packed right now. And you see very crisp, clean new shoes and outfits and, you know, earbuds. And everybody's out there, you know, getting in their two weeks workout before the next 50 weeks off, right? You know, but, but when you do that, you know it hurts, right? You know, to do squats for having not done them the first time in five years, whoo, you are not sitting down tomorrow, <laughs> you know? It's awful, right? You know, it hurts to do those exercises. It hurts to, but as we know, as we gain strength, it's not just pain for pain. It's not the pain of the flu, right? You know, you get a really good workout, and let's, let's put you in a month. Let's say you've done some work now, you know, and, and you're not just aching every, every muscle every time. You know, you can still have a really good workout, a really good burn, but it's not the pain of just the sickness of, like, you know, a fever, you feel it's the, it's the hurt that comes from growing, from getting stronger. And you're walking away going, yeah, I like that. That was good for me, right? And so I have the experience. I keep on getting told that there's this runner's high thing and you feel that too. I've never yet had a runner. You're a runner. You like to run. Is it a real thing? Yeah. I don't buy it for a second. I just, I've been at it for a while. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've tried, you know, um, the most I've ever been able to run in my life was two miles. I did that. finally got to two miles one time in my life. And it was hell. Okay, it was purgatory. It was hellacious, right? And it was awful. And I thought to myself, I'm not buying this. This is a lie. I, don't, I, don't, I can't believe this. You know, this is the first time I've ever run two continuous miles, and I just want the world to end. Um, so you, you get it? Okay, he gets it. Uh, so anyway. Um, okay. So. Uh, all right, flip to page six. Remember school. I don't remember school. I literally don't remember what this one is because I know I have a couple of analogies that work with this, um, and, and I really cannot tell you exactly which one it is. Uh, I'm going to hold off because I think it's one that actually goes better with one of the sacraments, so I'm going to skip that for right now. Um, but there was one thing I was going to comment from the other page, though. Um, uh, we'll go with we'll, we'll, I'm sure it'll pop up again. All right. Cool thought from Dante. Again, Dante is the one who is most known for purgatory. He, he becomes our, 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 our person who gives us most of our images for. One of the cool things about, uh, that Dante does, you, if you just ever encourage, in, encounter the Inferno, which is what most people do. Like, you read the Inferno sometime in, like, a Western lit class in college, and that's all anyone ever knows of Dante. And so all everyone knows of Dante is, like, crazy, gruesome things. You know, like, there's that uh, famous scene of literally the one guy biting on the back of the other guy's skull down in, in the Inferno, and literally, like, he's eating on the other guy brains like that's the kind of thing that people walk away from Dante with and and everyone like like finds it interesting the inferno is fun if you're looking for like a fun house of like horrible things and stuff like that but really having read all three I would say that the best one is actually the purgatorio it has the best lessons it has the best lines it has the best reflections um so as I mentioned um in, in Dante's little world I'm gonna flip it back over now in Dante's little world you got this mountain here right and they've come through the stairs um, by the way, anybody know what Dante's uh, ninth ring of hell, where the devil is, actually is like? It's not fire. Anybody know what it is? It's actually icy, which is hilarious that everyone always thinks of hell as, as fiery. Probably because Jesus talks about Gehenna as being where, you know, where the fire is quenched not and the worm dies not. But, so if you were going through uh, Dante's world, you'd go down through the nine rings of hell, down to the very bottom, which is like a glacier where there's um, Satan chomping on Judas. 
Iscariot, Brutus, and Cassius. So the, the great traitors of, of human history. It's hilarious that the guys that betrayed Julius Caesar in 44 BC are suffering the same punishment as the guy who betrayed the Son of God. Whatever. He's, he's, he's a, a classics man. Um, so they come through and they come out here. But purgatory in, in Dante's mind is an island. It's a, it's a mountain and it's an island. It's like basically just this giant cone floating in the middle of the ocean. And so they basically wash up on the shore of the, the beach, and then they kind of wind their way in, and then the mountain starts to go up, and they go up, 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 up. And then once they reach the top, then they can be lifted up into, um, into the paradisia, into paradise. Um, but what that means is whoever's farther up the mountain is closer to heaven, in Dante's mind, whoever's closer to the bottom is, is farthest away. So you can imagine whoever's right there on the beach barely made it, right? Like, like they, these are people that, that, that have the farthest to go. Like, they literally even describe it at one point, and it's almost like sub-purgatory. It's like these guys haven't even gotten the ball rolling onto the mountain yet. Um, but it's cool. The importance of him showing that is, is that is, of him showing how big the net is in, in, in Dante's mind. And so as Dante is, is walking across um, the, the, the beach, have I told you guys this story before? As Dante is walking across the beach, he sees this guy. And, of course, in Dante, Dante is actually much more like Jerry Springer or Oprah than he is great literature. What Dante is doing is taking all the great stories of his lifetime and dumping them in heaven, hell, and purgatory. So if he doesn't like that guy, boom. It, it's, it's like Twitter 13th century style. You know, if he doesn't like you rather than putting a nasty tweet, he just puts you in a nasty part of hell that fits to your crimes, right? You know, so he says you're a liar, he says you're a cheat, he says you're an adulterer, he says you're a, a traitor, he puts you in various lower levels of hell because of that. If he thinks you're okay, but kind of a moron, he puts you somewhere along the mountain of, of purgatory. So at one point, he shows up walking along uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the shore, and like these are people who haven't even gotten up yet. They're literally laying on their backs, sprawled as if they're like from a shipwreck. And he sees some of these guys, and one of them he recognizes, he's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I know, right? And he's like, no, seriously, I would have thought that you would have been in the inferno where I just came from. I didn't see you there. And he says, me too. All my life, I lived a life that should have left me down there. But at the last moments of my life, in my final, with my final breath, I cried out, mercy. And that's why I'm here. And it's a really beautiful line. It shows that like, no matter how far we drift, no matter how many vices we accumulate, no matter how much we are not loving and need remedial loving, if we simply turn to God and say, God, you're bigger than my sins. I beg your mercy that he can put us on purgatory. Now, maybe we got a long way to go. Maybe we got, you know, from the edge of uh, China up to the peak of Mount Everest to go. But God can do it, right? Because it's he's one who saves us from eternal damnation. And then he leads us to be purified on the way to eternal salvation through, through that process. Um, I'm going to pause now. I realized the thing that I was going to mention here, because um, I didn't draw this picture earlier. Um, the reason why I like the idea of the mudroom, and I, I might have done this once before. Have we talked about the mudroom analogy? Does that sound familiar? No, okay, okay. I think it must have been in, in the CCD group then. It's weird. Same board, same spot, same round tables. I just talked to different crowds. Um, it's perfect when you think about it in terms of, you know, it's a little ranch-style house, right? So I got my little door, and it's a Christmas party, and there's all sorts of fun little... See, that, that's the guy in me, right? I try and decorate with black. No, we got to use green and red, right? It's Christmas. All right, we got all the, all the stuff hanging up. We got the trees, trees, stuff like this, you know. But my car broke down, and I had to get out and push 
and dig it out of the snow, and I finally got it going, and I'm sweaty, and I'm muddy, and my shoes are wet, and my, my t-shirt is soaked through, and my tie is askew, and I'm coming up to the house, and I'm like, I don't want to go in there. I don't want to go in there sweaty, stinky, dirty, the way that Lewis described, right? So I'm not ready to go into the living room and join the party. What I'm hoping for is to come in the garage. I'm hoping to come in the garage. Let's imagine the garage door is open here. Right, there's the other doors. It's up here. And inside there is a little door leading up to the mudroom. You know, and I'm really hoping that this guy has a full, a full level mudroom. Not just a place to kick off my boots, you know, on the linoleum, but it'd be cool if he's got actually a washing machine there. Or some people even have a shower, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, some people really know how to do mudrooms, right? Especially out here in Nebraska where you might be coming off the farm, you know, where you can literally, you're always like, you're not coming into this house until you have showered, you know. You're going to get all the pig smell off you before you get in this door, right? You know, and that's the idea of, you know, it, it's part of heaven. This is heaven. I'm not in the, the, the living room yet where the big party is hopping. I'm trying to get myself cleaned up. So, again, I'm, I'm changing my clothes. I'm brushing my teeth. I'm, I'm taking a shower. Maybe I'm washing things. But at this point, I'm getting cleaned up before I go in. And, yeah, I might be a little late to the party, but I'm going to walk in at my best possible thing because I want to be, what's the song? I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. The saints aren't going to miss me if I'm, you know, gone for a few minutes getting myself cleaned up, right? You know, I want to be, I want to be at the best spot, as, as Lewis describes, all right? Um, where our aim should be. This is, one of the, this is one of the dangers of being a Catholic, is because we talk about purgatory, Catholics start to think on, oh, so it's like a sliding scale, like there's a curve, right? And they start to, Catholics have the problem of thinking, if it's heaven, hell, pur- I'm sorry, uh, heaven, hell, purgatory, Catholics tend to be like, I'm going to shoot for purgatory, right? Um, you guys know the story, or the song, um, uh, maybe Kenny Chesney, the uh, everybody want to go to heaven, but we don't want to go right now. You guys know that song? So like the verses are all about like, you know, people partying and doing dumb stuff. And, you know, we want to be good on Sunday for church. You know, everybody want to go to heaven, but we don't want to go right now. Which is kind of cool because it's actually, it's kind of a summary of St. Augustine saying in the, in the 400s, uh, God, give me chastity, just not yet. You know, he knows he wants, he knows he needs to get over to God's side. He needs to change his life. He needs to get rid of the concubine he's living with, but he doesn't want to do it yet. So God, give me chastity, just not yet. Um, uh, but so like that's Kenny Chesney's modern version of that. But it's the, uh, it's the idea of, um, you know, we, we kind of shoot for the, 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 yeah, purgatory. I can make that, right? You know, so Catholics sometimes be like, well, these are not many mortal sins. Um, uh, who cares if I have venial sins? Which is stupid and wrong-headed, but oftentimes we do that. You know, you, we, I, I have some good thoughts on that. We'll save for another class on, on confession and stuff like that. But the problem is, yeah, if you shoot for purgatory, you miss and you end up in hell. The answer for Catholics should be, shoot for heaven. If you miss, you got purgatory there, right? Because, again, are we really living up to remedial love, you know, to the perfect measure of loving? Who knows, right? You know, we hope so, but we, we try, but it's a good question, right? You know, shoot for Jesus on the cross. Shoot for that perfect kind of loving. If you fail, God's love is there to pick you up. Don't shoot for like, ah, I think I can get in the back door. No, because then you might be like, and I didn't really pull that off, right? So you don't want to be disappointed, right? Shoot, shoot for the highest. Um, limbo, very briefly. Here I was trying to get out here early, but I got carried away with all my knowledge, and we're going to be basically leaving right at 8. Um, limbo. Understand, purgatory is a Catholic doctrine. Limbo is not. All limbo is is a mental exercise slash hypothesis. So here's what happens. 
as we come out of the, 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 the Roman world and the, the church fathers begin to you know, explore more and more and think and, and reflect on sort of things, they, ask, they start asking harder and harder questions. And one of the questions uh, at that point is, okay, God tells us in John chapter 3, among other places, that we have to be baptized to enter eternal life. All right? But what about those who never had a chance to be baptized, either because they lived in a part of the world that never heard the gospel, so figure like, you know, at that time, Australia, you know, um, or uh, even to this day, certain parts of like the, the rainforest, you know, or they never had the time to be baptized, meaning that they lived before Jesus um, or before the gospel got in their direction, or they never had the time to be baptized in the sense that they were never born into this world with enough time. Maybe they were stillborn, maybe they were miscarried, maybe they were aborted, whatever. So these questions started to come up. And the way the church begins to talk about them is these are righteous pagans. Meaning they're pagans, they've never heard of Jesus, they've never been baptized, but they're righteous. They've never on a natural level done anything wrong. And what happens is there is such a strong focus on the idea of um, you must be baptized to enter into heaven that that kind of, that, that, that becomes the main thing. So we know they can't be in heaven. So where are they? Limbo comes from the Latin word limbus. Limbus is where we get also our word lintel, like the edge of the door. This is the limbus of the room. It's the doorway. So what limbo is suggested as, guys like Augustine and other ones around his time throw out there the idea of like, these people don't deserve to be in hell. But they can't be in heaven because they don't have sanctifying grace through baptism. So where are they? They're simply on the limbus. They're on the doorstep, the edge, the doorway of hell. There's no suffering. They haven't done anything wrong to deserve suffering. But they can't have the eternal blessings of heaven because they haven't been baptized. That starts off as a mental exercise in the 400s, and then it becomes more of a hypothesis, and then by the time you reach kind of the high Middle Ages, it becomes kind of just standardized theory. But you will never actually find a place where the church actually gives it doctrinal weight. The few times that, that um, uh, councils or popes ever talk about it is still in kind of a vague sort of way. But you never see it really given this stamp of orthodoxy, but people just take it for granted. Like, like you know, my mom grew up just with, like, standard, like, you know, where do, where do pagan babies go? Limbo, right? You know, where do uh, unbaptized babies who die before birth go? Limbo. Where can the righteous pagans go? Like, when Dante is going through hell, he's being led by, not Ovid, he's a poet, he's being led by, uh, who wrote the Aeneid? He's being led by, my teacher would kill me for this, um, Virgil. He's being led by Virgil, right? And why Virgil? Because Virgil is a righteous pagan. He picks up Virgil at the limbo, at the limbus, and then Virgil can lead him through. Virgil can show him through the way through hell, and then to go through purgatory, he, um, or to go, to go up to heaven, he has to have Beatrice. Um, but so it's this idea of, what do you do with that? But all along, that was basically just a hypothesis produced by people wondering, how do you, what it was, if you think about it, they were trying to apply God's mercy. They were trying to apply God's mercy despite the fact that people had been baptized. Luckily, in some sense, the, the, the modern world... Um, while I could, I could go on a long discussion here, for a while people just said, well, how about we just get rid of all of these things? Heaven, or we, we get rid of uh, purgatory and limbo and hell, right? You know, John Lennon, you know, right? Imagine there was no hell, heaven above us. Um, what was, no, no hell below us, above us only. I don't know, whatever. Whatever John Lennon says. Um, but the modern world did give us some better reflections. And one of the best was uh, Pope Benedict had the best reflections on limbo. And he makes it very clear that, one, this was never officially church doctrine. 
Two, it, it came from an attempt to apply God's mercy without really thinking through God's nature. That's a bold statement for a pope to say about St. Augustine, but he did. But his point was this. Can we really talk about happiness? If, if my soul was made for God, if Augustine is right in other places saying that our hearts are made toward you, God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, then can I have any kind of happiness? Can there be a natural happiness outside of supernatural happiness? And Benedict's answer is no. So there's no way to talk about, well, I'm not suffering in hell, but I'm only, I've got natural happiness, but not supernatural happiness. He says... That can't be. If my soul was made for God, there can be no such thing as just natural happiness. Either I'm made for God and I'm with God, or I'm not. And then he really goes through and he shows that, I mean, think about it. Okay, so previous to like 1900, we had way higher infant mortality, greater chances of, of uh, children dying, you know, in the first couple of years, and greater chances of miscarriage and stuff like that. But it really wasn't until later on that we actually realized how common miscarriage was. Because women could have tons of miscarriages they never even know about. You know, at this point, uh, you know, doctors tell us, you know, you might have any number of children you never knew you ever conceived, so because they never even had a chance to plant in the uterine wall, there was no disruption of the menstrual cycle. We could have literally over half the human race that was conceived never even be implanted. If that's the case, you have to ask ourselves, what kind of God do we think we would have if he would allow huge amounts of the human race by no fault of their own without any slightest chance to simply not be in heaven because of that? I mean, it's hard enough to justify God allowing those who are in Australia in 1500 to not be in heaven, right? Who, but who might have actually grown up in, you know, some have been good, some have been bad, some have been in between, right? But it's a lot harder to figure out how do you justify the eternal separation of those who never even had a chance. And so Benedict basically says, if we think that God is good and merciful and just, we have to think to ourselves that God has called these people to be with him. So I won't say that Benedict got rid of limbo. What I'd say is that limbo was never certain in the first place, and Benedict gives us good reasons to think, no, if these, are peop- if these souls are not sinful and turned away from God, then God has to have a way to take them to himself. We've talked before about how does like, the, the good thief on the cross make it to heaven anyway? How can Jesus say without the chance to baptize him, today be with me in paradise? As we said before, we need the sacraments, God doesn't. We need to seek out baptism and, confirm- and, and confession in the Eucharist, but God doesn't need those. So he can take the good thief in without baptism. He can take a, um, a righteous pagan in, you know, the, the, the rainforest in who simply tried as best he could to understand God's will and do it in his life, even though he didn't understand exactly God, right? And he can certainly take children who have never, you know, um, sinned or never even had the chance to even, you know, see the light of day. He can take them into himself, right? So I think that's our best way. Best way to understand is, is Pope Benedict's reflection on mercy and hope and stuff like that. Okay, so with 10 minutes left, let's talk about hell. Definition. Questions on any of that, by the way? Anybody? As you know, I don't usually pause, so I'll just keep up. Hell. What is hell? It, it's ultimate. All hell is is separation from God. Eternally. Is hell fiery? I don't know. Is hell torture? I don't know. Uh, is hell full of lots of screaming souls and demons sitting with pitchforks? I don't know. Because we don't get a lot of information about hell. And when we do, it's usually framed in a lot of figurative language, right? When Jesus talks about 
hell in, in the New Testament, he usually calls it Gehenna, where he talks about, you know, um, better to pluck your eye out and enter an eternal life than with your eye in or your hand intact be thrown to fiery Gehenna, where the fire is not quenched and the worm dies not, right? And, and that, anybody know what Gehenna actually is? You ever heard this before? Gehenna is the trash dump on the south side of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is built on kind of a, a, a three-sided cliff. Um, it's, you've got basically, you've got two valleys. You've got the uh, valley, uh, the Kidron Valley, which is the one Jesus crosses on the night of uh, Holy Thursday. So, okay, Jerusalem is a city up here, all right? And it sits up on this, this cliff top, all right? The Kidron Valley goes over here, and over here is like the, the, um, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And over here is also Mount Olive. All right. Um, so the Kidron Valley goes this way. And then you've got this weird L-shaped valley coming through, which is called the Valley of Ben-Himnon. And Ben-Himnon, literally the son of Himnon, um, that uh, area then, this is the steeper side. And down here is where the people of Jerusalem pile all their trash, and then it regularly gets burned. So you've got this fiery trash dump. Uh, literally a dumpster fire. I love it. Um, and that is Gehenna. So Ben-Himnon, over time in Aramaic, it's uh, um, garbled into Gehenna. So it's a great image for, like, it's stinky, it's nasty, you don't know what's in there, things are on fire, they burn it regularly, but you can imagine if you, like, flip it over, there's still hot spots in it, even maybe some things are burning deep down. It's a great nasty image of awful sludge. Um, and so that's, that's the image that Jesus uses. So he never uses hell by name. And in fact, the closest he comes to it is describing the netherworld, the underworld, the infernies that we talked about earlier, which literally, depending on how you read it, could almost look more like a purgatorial sort of place, where there still is communication and possibility of, of connection with heaven. That's a much bigger debate, and we can talk about it another time, right? But when Jesus wants to talk about punishment, he doesn't call it hell or Hades. He calls it Gehenna, all right? Um, other descriptions, uh, you know, in, in Revelation other places make it sound like it's a place you want to go, but we don't get the nice, clear, Dante-esque inferno descriptions. You don't, you know, get the, the demons with their pitchforks and the things from, like, the far side cartoons and stuff like that, right? So, what is it? It's separation from God eternally. What's it like? Great question. The thing that we know that it, I mean, let, let's go back to what, what we're saying here. We say it's separation from God. When you die, the world ends. This whole world might not end when you die. You'd be kind of an important person if it was. Um, but what does end is your world. When you die, whether you die a hundred years from now or a minute from now, then your world ends. And when the, the world is over, what's left? It's just you and God. So if it comes down to just you and God, we'll make him a little triangle because triangle God, and you, what it really comes down to is where are you facing? Are you facing toward him or are you facing away from him? And really, it might be as simple as that's between heaven and hell. Now, I'm not going to say that like literally eternity is just going to be like you staring in space at the triangle of God. No, I'm saying we're trying to understand in an analogous form what this is like, right? If I have oriented my life towards God, then when that veil is torn away, as I said earlier, I see that light and I want to be with it. I want to be in that fire. I want to be connected to that love. But if I've set up my life separated from that, then when that veil is torn away, that light hurts my eyes. That heat burns me. That strength seems to me repellent and tyrannical. And so I separate myself. Now, but don't we usually talk about hell as having a population? Sure. If you've got all these people, I mean, people make these little jokes like, you know, like, I don't want to go to heaven, it's boring, I want to go to hell, that's where the party kids are going to be. 
No, if hell is hell, if hell is really a lack of love, if hell is really people choosing self over God, if you can choose self over God, you're going to choose self over everything else too, right? So it's, it's a, it, hell then would be the population of people so locked in themselves, so closed off to love, so selfish, that there's not going to be a community there, right? The, the, the pain of purgatory isn't going to be the other guy chomping on the back of your head like Dante shows it. The pain of purgatory, or I mean, did I say purgatory? The pain of hell is going to be somebody chomping your head. The pain of hell is going to be loneliness, knowing that you're alone, that you've rejected love, you've rejected God, you've rejected others, and that you have that for eternity, and that you've chosen that. That's going to be the awfulness. But it's not going to be the sentence like, oh man, I messed up my words, you could change it, right? Because the whole thing of hell is the idea that the person didn't want to be changed. Now, we can debate whether or not we get kind of like one last chance, one final question, one final jeopardy moment to like straighten things out. People talk about like, do you have kind of that final moment? I think that that's a problematic question one way or the other. But even if you, if you did that, you know, it would seem that the key question is, given, that chance, given all those chances, is a person still saying, God, I do not want to be with you? People would say, like, why would anybody ever reject God? Why would you ever choose? Okay, let's do that next one. How does one get there, right? Um, people would say, like, why would you, how, how would you get there? I could see myself being so angry. I can see myself being so despairing that I could push away even God. Has anybody ever been, been there in that moment where you're so angry you don't want God anywhere near you? You've been so despairing you don't believe that God could help you? I know I've been there. And that in, in that moment, if you can take that and magnify that out, you can imagine what it's like when a person says, God, I do not want you. I, I, I cannot take you. I, I, you. You are too much. I don't want to go there. I think we can understand where that comes from. So now we ask the question of why, would, why anyone could. Because I think we can ask the question of, you know, when people would say, you know, why would you ever separate yourself? It's not so much that idea that a person in clear thinking says, God, I don't want to be happy. It's more like I've been building up an altar to myself for my entire life. Will I choose at that last moment to bow down to God? So you picture like the entire life is either I'm either worshiping God or worshiping self. I'm either building up this big altar to God or worshiping this big altar to myself. You know, use like an Adolf Hitler, a guy who's a true literal megalomaniac narcissist, right? You know, he's been building an altar to himself and his ideas for, I don't know how old is Hitler, 50, something, 60 when he dies. He's been building this whole, this whole worldview. When he dies, he's going to have a hard time accepting that he has to tear that altar down. Right? And again, Lewis is great in great divorce showing. It doesn't have to be a giant wall, a giant thing. It can be one little thing. If um, John of the Cross famously says, um, whether it's tied by a, a string or a chain, the bird is still not free. Meaning, if one little thing holds you back from flying, or one giant thing holds you back from flying, if, it holds, if it's tying you down, you're still not free. And that's what Lewis does a great job. That it can even, he has this one example of this, this mother who is so heartbroken and upset about the loss of a child that she had turned away from her spouse, from her other children, and she's so upset that God won't let her just focus on her lost child that she won't take in God's love, she won't take in her spouse's love, she won't take in her neighbors or her, her other children, and that becomes her focus, and Lewis is trying to show, like, ma'am, you're not going to be saved if you cling to this child. And she gets upset. She's like, how can you say that I shouldn't love this child? He's like, I'm not saying that. It's that you're clinging so much to this, you're not letting God love. If you accept God, you can have the child as well. 
You know, and she's like, but I mean, I'm, I, I'm dead now. I should be able to take in the child I've been waiting for for years. Like, but you have to choose God. If you let this child be in the way, you will ultimately not be able to receive either of the two. It's kind of like, you know, Lewis has another place, another book where he talks about, you know, people focus on the earth and they miss the heavens. Shoot for the heavens and God throws in earth as well. Aim for the earth and you get neither. And that's kind of the thing of like, he has this proving that even this very good thing, this love of, of a family member could become twisted up in this like self-consumption that literally the person is unable to accept the love of God. It's kind of a fascinating thing. And that's why A Great Divorce really is Lewis's best book. It's where he most challenges us what we think is uh, going on. So why would anyone? Um, oh, I suppose I probably mixed up wood and could here. So under, let's, under, under wood, first of all, let's put the idea there that um, we have free will, right? We have to acknowledge that a person with free will could choose to reject God. Right? For the second one, I, I would put down the idea that I can build up enough of a worship of myself that I might not be able to accept God at the end. And then on the last page, on number seven, number three, just simply that sometimes we have to recognize that pride is huge. Right? The devil didn't have vices. The devil didn't have gluttony or lust or laziness. The devil's only possible sin was pride, right? That's the only way that the devil could turn away. But in the end, a person simply can say, like the devil himself, better to reign in hell than to be ruled in heaven. I do not want to bow. Has anybody ever read uh, any of the uh, Narnia books by C.S. Lewis? I keep on quoting him, but he's got the best stuff. Um, like Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? Yeah. Uh, in the last book, it's called The Last Battle, and it's kind of his, like, eschatology book. And in there, there's a great scene. There's these dwarves, and the dwarves keep on insisting the dwarves will not be taken in. The no- dwarves will not be taken in. They won't be fooled. They won't be tricked. But because they have such this stern, stubborn sense that we don't have to be taken in, when good things come, like basically God and heaven and salvation, the dwarves keep on insisting, no, the dwarves will not be taken in. And so it be, it, it's a pun, but Lewis makes the point of because they won't surrender to bad things, and that's great, but because they won't surrender to the good things either, they can't be saved. And so that, that pride can basically keep them from that. Final uh, question there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid the other ones because we're at the end of time and they're not uh, huge things. Can they repent? This is the, 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 the constant question. Can the people in hell repent? As far as we know, no. Remember we talked earlier about can the angels that have fallen, the demons, can they repent? And we said no. We used the example like the, the light bulb and the bouncy ball and stuff like that. As far as we know that there is not repentance because it would seem like if there was any way God could turn the soul he would have. He would have before this moment, you know, and actually St. Faustina in her diary on Divine Mercy tells, has Jesus describing to her all of the different ways he tries to give a soul mercy and bring them back around, like the ways he literally almost tries to trick the soul into opening up to his mercy. But if God can't bring the person in, God ultimately is not going to force them because then it wouldn't be free will. That's as far as we know. Again, we need the sacraments. God doesn't. We know what we know. God might know more. Is there the chance that God can recapitulate the entire universe? Is there a chance that he can hit some sort of reset button on them? We don't know. Uh, it, it is hard to imagine that we could ever be happy in heaven if there's people suffering in hell, especially if that might include relatives or friends or whatever. 
But at the end of the day, we just simply don't know, but we do know that there is such a thing as free will, and God respects that. What he does beyond that is literally beyond our knowledge and beyond this world, but we have to go with what we know, which is that God does give people the real freedom to love him and to not love him, to accept him and to not accept him, to be taken in, or to be like the dwarves and refuse to be taken in. That's as much as we know.